Do you know what the acronym LGBTQ plus stands for? And how are you reacting right now to that question? While you're thinking about that, let me share with you a part of a 2012 Christianity Today article. Recently, a young couple started coming to our church. They're very likable. They married a few years ago on the other side of the country, then migrated west to our town and visited several churches until they ended up in ours. Both take their faith seriously. Both are seeking a place where they can worship, serve, and grow. They want a loving and Christ-centered environment in which to raise their daughters in the, quote, nurture and admonition of the Lord. Both are women. Linda and Rita are lesbians. How would you respond to that couple if they visited West Irwin Church of Christ? How did you respond when I asked, do you know what that, those letters stand for? Was it an immediate judgment on people that those letters describe? Was it, uh, I'm tired of this whole discussion? <laughs> How would we respond if this couple I just mentioned visited West Irwin? How would you respond to them if they sat on your pew? Because the truth of the matter is, they're sitting on the pews of all of our young people every single day. All of our college-age students, every day. And most of all of us in your work world, every day. The article continues, my first question to them was, why us? There are two or three churches nearby that have no theological issue at all with same-sex marriages. They perform them, celebrate them, welcome those in them. Our church is not one of these churches, the writer continues. We're firmly embedded in our evangelical heritage, a strong emphasis on the Bible, on personal holiness, on evangelism and activism. And strong feelings about homosexuality. Very strong feelings, he writes. Linda and Rita actually grew up in this kind of a church. And that was part of their answer to why us. The other part of their answer was intriguing. They see life and joy in our church and they want in on it. We didn't know what to do with them. He writes, I lost more sleep over this than almost anything else in my 20 years of pastoral ministry. My heritage told me to give them the heave-ho. My theology told me they were living in defiance of God. 
But a stirring inside me, which I can only describe as the Spirit of God, told me something else, that God himself had drawn these women here. He was doing something deep in Linda and Rita, and he was entrusting our church to join him in his work. GoodRx.com has an instructive article on uh, this acronym, LGBTQ+. L stands for lesbian. The term lesbian describes a woman who is physically, emotionally, or romantically attracted to other women. G stands for gay. The term gay describes a person who is physically, emotionally, or romantically attracted to people within the same gender. I think lesbian is used primarily for women, uh, gay for men. B stands for bisexual. The term bisexual describes a person who is physically, emotionally, or romantically attracted to people within more than one sex, gender, or gender identity. T stands for transgender. The term, trans, <clears throat> the term transgender describes a person whose gender identity or expression is different than their sex assigned at birth. We're going to be speaking more about the transgender questions and issue <clears throat> one week from today, next Sunday. <clears throat> Q stands for queer. An adjective used by some people in whose sexual orientation is not exclusively heterosexual or straight. It's an umbrella term that includes people who have other identities related to sex and gender. Q can also stand for questioning. Someone who is questioning and is just not sure where they fall as far as sexuality. The plus sign at the end stands for, you're going to love this, plus. (laughs) The plus sign is a symbol that represents members of the community who identify with a sexual orientation or gender identity that isn't included within the LGBTQ. Another is I, another is A, intersex or asexual, that are a part of this acronym and, and that list seems to get longer all the time. I think it's important for us to be aware of that. I think it's important for us to be able to have a conversation about it without approaching it either in complete ignorance um, or in arrogance. I don't think Jesus would want us to, to be either one of those when it comes to this subject and this discussion. I think the people that that acronym describes were created by God in the image of God. And Jesus died on the cross for them. Just like he died on the cross for me. Doesn't mean that they're living right. It doesn't mean that their actions are not sinful. But yet that exact thing is what Jesus was accused of believing when he showed some degree of acceptance to people who were sinners. 
likely we will be too. So first of all, two extremes. Two extremes related to sexuality, speaking specifically of God's designs. God's design of our sexuality. Two extremes. First of all, one view says same-sex attraction and homosexuality are gross and homosexualities are the worst kind of sinners. Sarah Barrett in her book that we're using as a resource in this study that is on your uh, sermon outline as a resource quoted someone else as they called this the, quote, argument of ickiness. This is the homophobic view. That these sins are gross and homosexuals are worse than all other kind of sinners. They make God sick. And so my question, as we were discussing this in our Bible class a few moments ago, my question is, what sins don't make God sick? What sins are not a perversion of the design with which God made us? Again, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it not a sin. It just puts it in perspective. And just the fact that I'm willing to do that will cause some to wonder if I think it's wrong or not. (laughs) Just like they did with Jesus. Just like they'll do with you. If you show some degree of compassion and understanding and acceptance of a person that that acronym describes. That's one extreme. The other extreme view says that loving the homosexual and those who feel an attraction to those of their same sex must include accepting and approving of their attractions and lifestyle and actions. And that is just as wrong. (laughs) Because it's not biblical, and we're going to see that in just a moment. But that's where we are in our country in many ways in this discussion today. And that is, if you don't not only accept them as a person created in the image of God, but also uh, encourage them and condone their lifestyle choices and the fact that they believe that this uh, homosexual lifestyle is completely acceptable to God, if you don't do that, then you don't love them, you're homophobic, and you're a bigot. And none of those things is true either. (laughs) They could be. They might be with some. But they don't have to be. Those are the two extremes. Which of these is the biblical view? Which of these reflects a Christ-like response? And it's easy for us this morning to say, well, neither, Bill. And so let me ask you this question and honestly answer it to yourself. Which, if either, reflects your view? Hopefully neither. But if we're really honest, there are some of us today that say, well, I kind of like that one. So let's talk about the biblical teaching next. 
Let me be very, very clear. Homosexuality is a sin. That's my view, and I base that view of my understanding of what the Bible says. And there are lots of scriptures on your outline, and we'll mention some of them. It goes back to creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created us in His image. He also created us male and female. We'll talk more about that next week. He also instituted the relationship and the covenant of marriage. It's not man that thought that up. It was God. And God decided that humanity would take on two uh, sexes, male and female, and that they would complement each other, and that there would be this special covenant relationship called marriage between a husband and a wife. And a man would leave his father and mother and would be devoted to, cleave to his wife. And the two of them would be one flesh. And they were both naked, Genesis says, and they were not ashamed. Shame came with sin, not with God's design. Jesus would quote Genesis when asked about the marriage relationship. And so for someone who comes to me and says, well, yeah, Bill, the law condemns it, I get it. The epistles, Paul certainly didn't like it and he condemned it, I get it. But Jesus never condemned homosexuality. That is wrong. That is wrong. And here's why. Number one, Jesus did. By affirming Genesis, Jesus condemned it. Just as he condemned all other sin regarding marriage. That's not God's ideal. That's not God's vision. That's not God's design. But the other part of that is, well, okay, what about the rest of the Bible? What about the rest of the New Testament? Are you telling me that those things don't matter at all? (laughs) That they're not inspired word of God? Because I believe with all of my heart that if you believe that this book is the inspired word of God then you're going to come to the conclusion that homosexuality is a sin. Because that's what this word teaches. And it teaches it all the way through. We saw Hebrews 13 verse 4 last week that God would judge those who are sexually immoral. But marriage itself is honorable and is to be kept honorable. And the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is pure and is to be kept pure. It's God's design. Genesis 19 is listed there. Really, Genesis 18 and 19 tell the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know where we got our word sodomy? It goes back to the Latin, goes back to the ancient Greeks. It goes back to Genesis 18 and 19, where the city was so infiltrated with sin, the city of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah, that it was on display in a huge way, and God had had enough. And in spite of Abraham's pleadings, the city was destroyed. The old law condemns the sin of homosexuality, but as does the New Testament. We'll read just a couple of verses, a couple of passages. First of all, Romans 1, beginning at verse 24. And the amazing thing about this passage is it's not just talking about Christians. It's not just talking about Jews. It's not just talking about the people of God. It's talking actually about non-Christians. 
about Gentiles, non-Jews. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The haunting statement, God gave them over. God gave up on them. God said, okay, if you are insistent on living this sinful life, I will let you. God gave them over. 1 Corinthians 6 shares these words in verses 9 and 10. Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexuality is a sin. We could read other passages, but I'll just read one more. 1 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Homosexuality is a sin. If you accept the Bible as the inspired and the authoritative word of God and you don't rip out half of the books, then you must come to that conclusion. Secondly today, we are all sinners. Homosexuality is a sin, but guess what? We're all sinners. That may not be a temptation you face. It may not be a sin that you've ever experienced yourself. But we are all sinners. Every single one of us. Romans brings that out, as you know, in such a wonderful way in the first three chapters. Saying there is no unrighteous, no, not even one. All have sinned and come short of God's glory. And then again, back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, read one more verse after that list of sins that includes homosexuals, verse 11, and that is what some of you were to the Christians at Corinth in modern day Greece. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 John 1 and 2 says, if anyone says they haven't sinned, they're lying. And they're calling God a liar. And they need a savior. But the good news of the gospel is we have one. He is the lamb of God that we sang about 
earlier. We are all sinners. This takes away the, quote, argument of ickiness. When we acknowledge that we're all sinners and that there's no sin that is approved by God and there's no fairly good sins and bad sins, just sin, it takes away that argument because we're right there with them in the eyes of God. As our shepherd Jay Bynum led us in prayer, he prayed that we acknowledging that we struggle to live a life of righteousness. And we struggle to encourage others to live that same way. Homosexuality is a sin. We are all sinners. Number three, there is a difference between temptation and sin. And I think this is the point that so many in our cultural discussion today don't get. There's, you, we must differentiate between temptation and sin regarding all sins. We must remind ourselves that being tempted to do or not do something that God either forbids or commands, and actually doing it or not doing what He commands, those are not the same. <clears throat> Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Acting on it is. Just like being tempted to lie is not a sin. Actually lying to someone is. And so we must differentiate between same-sex attraction and homosexual acts. We acknowledge that there are some people that are tempted with same-sex attraction. And there are many who recognize that and who acknowledge that that's a sin in the eyes of a holy and just God and have committed to live a celibate life because of that. Because they recognize that. Just like we must differentiate between other temptations and the acts themselves. Lying, gossip, losing your temper. Someone will come to me and say, well, Bill, I know I lost my temper. I'm so sorry. It's just the way I'm wired. It's just the way I'm made. Yeah, and it's sinful. Stop doing it. (laughs) Get control of it. And if you need help to do that, get help. It's out there. But just because you struggle with that and are tempted with that, it doesn't justify it at all. And the same is true of same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Lila Rose, who is a wonderful pro-life advocate in this country, and we'll be looking at that issue in a few weeks, she says sexual desires are things we have, not who we are. A few weeks ago, Eric spoke about our identity. And we're not identified by our temptations. including the sexual temptations that we all face. They may look differently for one person to another, but they don't define us. And we can overcome them. The opposite of homosexuality is not becoming heterosexual. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. In the same sense that the opposite of lying is not telling the truth, the opposite of lying is holiness. In the same sense that the opposite of gossip 
is not keeping your trap shut. The opposite of gossip is holiness. If you live this way, you're not living a life of holiness. Whatever that sin is. And we're all in the same boat there. Number four, as the old saying goes, we must what? Love the sinner and hate the sin. And for some of us, we really have trouble distinguishing that. This is what Jesus did so well, and we won't ever do this as well as he did, but we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And he calls on us to treat others the way he has treated us, loving us, accepting us, forgiving us, calling us to live obediently. And we must treat others the same way and do for them what the Savior has done for us. Love them, accept them, forgive them, and call them to live obediently. Those who experience same-sex attraction can find hope in the fact that Jesus came to sacrifice His life and shed His blood so that He could be your Savior, so that He could be the Savior of everyone, whatever their sin, who turns to Him. Those who don't experience this temptation can consider the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, we read a few moments ago. That's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified through the blood of Jesus. All have sinned. We can remind ourselves of that, including me. And we can be reminded of that when speaking to those with the same-sex attraction that before a holy God and sinless Savior, we all come broken to the Lord in need of Christ's perfect love and saving grace. So before we give a few points of help, this statement before we close. Our task is to be a church that welcomes sinners without abandoning holiness, and that's hard. If we could just do one or, another, one or the other, it would be so good. <laughs> if he didn't want us to welcome the sinner, just stay close to the word, then that'd be easy, great. Or if he wanted us to just welcome whoever, whatever, however, and don't worry about faithfulness in the Bible, that would be easy too, but he calls us to be both. To be a church that welcomes sinners without abandoning holiness. And I appreciate, Chris, you bringing up the He Gets Us campaign. You've seen some of those commercials already. He Gets Us. And I got to tell you, I'm with Chris. I would probably write them differently. (laughs) But I would have written Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments differently too. So there you go. But tomorrow or sometime this week, when you're talking to your friends at school or when you're gathered around the water cooler or the coffee pot or whatever it is you gather around and you talk about stuff and someone brings up did you catch the game yesterday then talk a little bit about how the Chiefs look so good and Patrick Mahomes is so great and he's from Tyler or White House sorry somewhere or another in that conversation just kind of blend in well did you, did you notice that commercial that talked about Jesus he gets us What would you think of that? 
here's a great opportunity of a nationwide campaign that we can use to help turn a conversation toward the Lord and toward His Word. And granted, there may be some things I'm with Chris that I will likely disagree with on it. But it can bend the attention towards Jesus in a very easy, non-threatening conversation at work or school. Our task is to be a church that welcomes sinners without abandoning holiness, which means that we must be individuals who welcome sinners without abandoning holiness. And that's you and me. This acknowledges the tension between grace and truth, mercy and righteousness. It's the call to accept others while upholding the truth. It's Bonhoeffer's call to be thankful for grace. But recognize that it's only cheap grace if I say it frees me to do whatever I want. And so does this describe you? Are you a person who welcomes sinners without abandoning holiness? And how can we do that, especially with those who are facing LGBTQ plus issues? How do we do that? So here are five things, and I'll go through them quickly. And perhaps you can send me some other things that could be added to this list. Number, <clears throat> number one, don't ignore them. Don't ignore them. Don't get scared as if God doesn't exist <laughs> to go talk to them. Don't pretend that they don't exist, that you don't see them. Don't ignore them. Number two, Stephen Covey's words, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Before you go to preaching and telling them how homosexuality is a sin because my preacher said so, (laughs) try to understand them, where they are, where they've come from, what they're going through right now. Number three, ask sincere, non-judgmental questions. This is how you accomplish number two. By the way, ask questions. What is it about this lifestyle that appeals to you? How did you realize that this is how you were and this is what you want? And perhaps sometime down the line, the discussion can get to what convinced you that, that God is okay with this? In spite of what we've talked about, what the Bible says, and that's number four, let the scriptures speak. When it is time to share the word of God, make sure it's the word of God (laughs) and not just your opinion. And number five, assure them of God's love for them and yours. Assure them that whatever their choices, wherever they are, God loves them. And he gave his son for them just like he did for you. And you love them too. Even though you think what they're doing is not only wrong and sinful, but it it will end up hurting them. In spite of that, you love them. Let them never question 
and wonder about that. Let them know that what you want for them more than anything else is this blessed assurance that only comes from knowing Christ. If we can help you get there today, come as we stand and sing this great old hymn together. Blessed assurance.